0: Hello and welcome to this special episode of the Equality Commission's Women in STEM podcast. I'm Alan Maven, and it's a privilege and a delight to be speaking to today's guest. Professor Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell is the astrophysicist who was responsible for the discovery of pulsars while a radio astronomy postgraduate student in Cambridge, and she has continued in that field of astronomy ever since. Today, she is Chancellor of the University of Dundee, as well as a visiting academic in Oxford. Jocelyn, you're very welcome to the podcast. Now, before we get to pulsars and astronomy, maybe you could set the scene for us. Were you encouraged into science when you were at school in Lurgan? At school? No. (laughs)
1: um, I can remember the first week of secondary school. And on the Wednesday afternoon, the girls were to go to a certain room and the boys to another, which I thought was sport, but it wasn't. They sent the boys to the science labs and the girls to the cookery room. No discussion, no choice. So... Had a battle to get into the science class.
0: Even though the opportunity was being cut off, you had a strong desire to do science.
1: Yeah, my parents were always very keen that we did science, and it was one of the attractions of secondary school that was held out to me. So I was rather disappointed when it seemed it might not happen.
0: And how early did you decide that physics and then astrophysics were for you? We've heard in this podcast from other people, sometimes inspired as a very young child, and sometimes making that choice much older.
1: Well, in that first term of secondary school, having fought to get into the science class, we did physics that first term, and I loved it. And I came top of the class without really having to try. So I thought, ah, this is good. We did chemistry next term. That was okay. We did biology the third term. We were given a flower to draw, label the parts, learn the names. Good, you've done that. Here's another flower, draw it, label the parts, learn the names, Oh, you finished that one, right, here's another flower. And it went on like that the whole term. And I thought, biology is boring. And what a dire introduction to any subject. <laughs>
0: this podcast is talking to women working across a whole range of STEM areas, science, technology, engineering and mathematics. And the gender balance of the places of study and in the workplace seems to have varied a lot between the guests in each episode. Back when you were studying at Glasgow and Cambridge during the 1960s, were there many women studying alongside you? No,
1: there weren't many women. There weren't. In Cambridge, the numbers of women was limited in the university by the number of colleges. So women at most made up about 10 percent of the student body Mm -hmm. and probably an even smaller fraction of the postgraduate student body, which is what I was by then. So there were very few women around, to be honest, yes. And because I read physics as a, an undergraduate student, I ended up the only female in the class of 50.
0: And can you remember what it felt like to be in such a minority? Were you terribly aware that you were the only woman in the room? Like
1: hell I did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was made very clear to me. <laughs> in Glasgow University at that time, it was the, quote, tradition when a woman walked into the lecture theatre, all the guys whistled and stamped and catcalled and banged the desks. And in the more junior classes, it was OK because there'd be a group of women and we'd gather outside the lecture hall and walk in together. But for my final two honours years, I was the only female in 50 men and had to face that on my own. You learn not to blush. You can control your blushing. I've lost the technique now, but I, I acquired it and used it regularly. <laughs> That helped.
0: <laughs> so has resilience continued to be important in your career?
1: I think resilience in um, a scientist is good in anybody. But yes, the women have had to show, the women in Britain have had to show more of it than the men because they've been in a minority.
0: If there was a 20-year-old Jocelyn Bell starting out in physics or astrophysics today, do you think it would be a remarkably different experience?
1: Yes, I think it would be. Um, there'd be a lot more women around. There'd be generally a more diverse body of people around you and you'd have, you'd be embedded in a society that has become much more alert to diversity issues and is prepared mostly to improve them.
0: When you were a student, you were one woman in a classroom of men. Uh, What would that ratio look like these days?
1: Um, I think you might expect something like a third to be women.
0: So not, not, not quite parity, but, but a huge not improvement. Not quite
1: parity, but definitely not, you know, a small minority.
0: Yeah. We can't really talk to you, Jocelyn, without mentioning the discovery of pulsars and the Nobel Prize that you didn't win. Uh, people listening may not know the story, but having helped build the radio telescope at Cambridge, you pored over miles of signals printed out in paper charts and were the first person to find evidence of pulsars, these rotating neutron stars in, in simple terms. But when your supervisor ended up receiving the Nobel Prize for the discovery rather than you, was that a disappointment and a, and a setback?
1: Um, it annoyed my contemporaries enormously, who labelled the Nobel Prize No-Bell Hyphen Prize, which was rather clever. Um, I was actually pleased about the announcement of the Nobel Prize because it's the physics committee that awards that prize. There isn't an astronomy Nobel Prize. And until then the physicists hadn't looked at astronomy as a subject even worth thinking about for the prize. And here we've cracked it. Mm -hmm. This was the first time astronomers had got a Nobel physics prize. And I knew that once that was cracked, others would follow in. And that has indeed been the case. So I could see instantly, I'm quite a strategy person, I could see instantly that this was a really important decision with likely consequences in future years. So I was pleased that at last the Physics Committee had seen that there was good physics in astronomy and they'd selected my stars for that.
0: It is quite selfless of you to see it that way though, I mean you didn't know that you'd go on to become the President of the Royal Astronomical Society or the first female President of the Institute of Physics. So Talking to you in 2021, it seems appalling that even if your stars were selected, that you were overlooked.
1: At that time, science was much more hierarchical. Mm-hmm. It's much more collegiate these days, and credit would probably go to students much more easily than it, it would back then. So it, it was the way the world was at that time, to be honest. I was pleased that it was these pulsars that they'd noticed. That was the main thing for me.
0: You've also spoken before about the burden of expectation you felt after making the Pulsar discovery so early in your career, I mean, midway through your PhD, which was an extraordinary achievement. Um, And you've said it wasn't helped by becoming a wife and a mother so soon afterwards. Uh, Did you feel pressure to step away from research or were you quite determined that you could be passionate about both family and science at the same time and prove that both were possible?
1: I wanted to do both. I was very clear about that. Society regarded me first and foremost as a wife and mother. I can remember, for instance, before my child was born, I had a lecturing job in a certain university, discussed with the guy organising the lecture schedule, how I would be described and so on. So it was, you know, Dr. Burnell. And the schedule came out and there was professor this and doctor that and Mrs. Burnell, the lecturer. And the secretary smiled sweetly and said, we thought you'd prefer it that way, which says a lot about how society regarded women
0: in those days. I know you prefer to look forwards than back. So I'm wondering what changes you have seen since those early days and how women are represented and valued and respected. How big a change has there been?
1: There's been enormous change. And until COVID struck, because that's changed things back, I think. But until COVID struck. A lot of attention paid to being fair to all sexes, all races as well, um, all sexual orientations, uh, and women really beginning to do very, very well. Uh, I'm aware that during the pandemic, women scientists who are also mothers have perhaps done more of the childcare, supporting the child's education than have the fathers. And so I fear they will have slipped back. Well, the data to show they've slipped back, you know, they've been publishing fewer papers than their male counterparts, for example. And I don't quite know how we're going to take account of this when we come to the next rounds of promotion and pay rises and things like that. So I'm sorry that there's been this setback.
0: This podcast is trying to reverse some of the discouragement and instead encourage girls and women to think seriously about STEM as a career. Have you any advice for girls with an aptitude for science, maybe particularly physics or maths? If you've got an aptitude
1: for science, go for it. It's a great occupation. It's fascinating. It'll keep you interested. It's also what society needs. We need a lot of scientific innovation to help get us out of things like climate change and how we deal with waste products and things like that. So there's a real need for scientists of all sorts in the foreseeable future.
0: In Northern Ireland, the statistics show that there's a really pronounced decline in girls participating in STEM subjects between GCSE exams and A-levels. There's a 65% drop-off between those two sets of exams for girls compared with only a 6% drop-off for boys. Um, Are you surprised that that's still the case in 2021?
1: I'm sorry about the situation. And I think it's to do with false perceptions, not just on the part of the girls, but their families and those around them, you know, that physics isn't for girls, that kind of image. I'm glad to be able to tell you that the girl guides have introduced a badge called I am a physicist, uh, which is open to all levels of guides. And this has proved quite a hit. And indeed, two brownie troops in Belfast have put girls through it. And one other troupe, I think it's somewhere in South Down. So tens of thousands of Girl Guides and Brownies are now doing this badge. And I hope that makes more young women feel that physics is for them, because it is. And it's a myth that like it's a boy's subject.
0: What about the employers, the institutions, organizations and companies? I mean, in your view, Jocelyn, are there practical or systemic changes that they could make to become more welcoming of a a diverse range of employees, including women?
1: Well, certainly this side of the water, they're legally required to be diverse. And I would imagine it's the same in Northern Ireland. Um, So I think companies need to look carefully at their own recruitment and promotion data check that they are being fair to all sectors of society, not just the gender issue.
0: And does science lose out by having to focus on one particular place in the world or one gender or whatever way we cut it?
1: The business world has already demonstrated that. There's a business consultancy firm called McKinsey's, and it's done work on diversity in the workforce. And it has established beyond all doubts that the more diverse a workforce the more flexible, the more robust, and the stronger is that body. Businesses need it, research needs it, every group of people needs diversity, because we have to be both robust and flexible and
0: successful. Diversity and inclusion clearly matter a lot to you, and you've a a track record of encouraging and supporting women and other underrepresented groups. Uh, three years ago, when you were awarded the special breakthrough prize in fundamental physics, you very generously gave away the seven-figure prize to set up a scholarship fund, uh, I think in partnership with the Institute of Physics, mm-hmm. to yeah. encourage greater diversity right. and assist PhD physics students from a more diverse background. Are you are you pleased with how that fund is going and how it's helping?
1: Yes, um, they about to announce their second round of awards. And the fund has been considerably increased by a legacy from somebody, I don't know who. And this last year they awarded four research studentships. This year, I believe they're awarding nine, which is a big step up, which is great. So it's good and and it's, I think, going to make an impact. It's to enable not just women, but people from any underrepresented group in physics to stay on and do physics research. So an underrepresented group might include people of color, could include refugees, um, all sorts of categories. Anything but white males, I'm sorry to say, Alan, (laughs)
0: that's okay I think we've had our I think we've had our time in the sun uh, to be honest Jocelyn you're now one of the world's most respected and famous astronomers and we're very grateful for you using your voice to inspire and encourage girls and young women to follow in your footsteps and for showing that the sky is not a limit anymore and that's the end of this very special Equality Commission Women in STEM podcast thanks again to our guest Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell and thank you for listening